0: So we'll just, people got to listen to this on their drive home today. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't wait till Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, Joining me today is, is Darlin, of course, and we do not have anyone else because the relevant people are still on Capitol Hill because the potential of chaos, the opening up. We void have no idea up,
1: what's uh, going to happen between when we are saying these words and when you will hear these words. We do know that as of right now, we are several hours from a government shutdown. And so our goal today is to explain to you how we got to several hours from a government shutdown and what that means. And hopefully this will be worth it to you regardless of what has happened when we right. hear this But podcast.
0: so just to have the full context is right now, 10.08 a.m. Eastern Time. Government funding expires at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time today. Uh, so we are operating... With the knowledge, uh, there's a lot of known unknowns, but this is the weeds, and, and we think that we can we can bring to light some some relevant information, help you understand some known unknowns. If how you will. how we have come to this this pretty pass, um, and I think that starts with the fact that to keep the government open, you need to pass affirmative legislation every once in a while. That. Directs agencies to spend money on things, um, and that those pieces of legislation require sixty votes in the United States Senate, not just fifty.
1: Why is that? Because isn't there isn't the entire point of the reconciliation process that you know we saw last year with Obamacare repeal that the budget process kind of ha- is supposed to have this lower threshold?
0: Right. This is the. Nuance of the system in the in the seventies, there was a lot of intra branch conflict because um, because the Democratic majorities got so big in Nixon's second term and when Ford was in office and uh, Nixon's approval rating became so low before he was removed from office and you know people were fired up uh, after that and so there were a lot of reforms. Other things were happening too. Uh, there's there's some good books about uh, party reform. I think Julian Zelizer has a good one. Anyway. So one idea they had was they should create this, like, express budgeting process, right? And that's the budget reconciliation process. But this was contentious at the time. And Robert Byrd, who was a a veteran uh, leader of the Appropriations Committee, he didn't really like this idea. So he put big carve-outs, right? This is this is the bird rule into the system. So one huge carve-out is you can't change Social Security in a reconciliation bill. Uh, but the other huge carve-out is you can't change discretionary programs. You can't change the programs that are appropriated on the annual cycle. So what's left is in reconciliation, you can change tax law. You can change non-Social Security entitlement programs. So that's mostly healthcare stuff. Uh, at, at the time, it was overwhelmingly Medicare. Uh, it's come to be more Medicaid. Obamacare subsidies are in there. There's a couple more programs. There's some stuff for veterans, um, some aspects of food stamps, sort of in that bucket. And then you can throw in weird regulatory stuff, and then you sort of hash it out with a parliamentarian, whether that counts as having substantial budgetary effect, right? So, so uh, drilling in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge the parliamentarian said, that's fine. That's that's budgetary. But so the amount of focus on the question of, is that really budgetary, right? So like Anwar is budgetary, but defunding Planned Parenthood isn't, can let you think, well, surely whether the whole government operates or not is budgetary. But it's discretionary. This
1: anecdote, by the way, should clarify something for you that— you know, when we talk about the government shutting down, it is not the entire government shutting down. And in addition to this kind of question of, like, what is an essential government function because those don't have to shut down, there are also a lot of the things that Matt mentioned as non-discretionary are funded through other means. So in addition to entitlements, there are just a lot of things that Congress gives money for outside of this appropriations process that therefore get to keep going even if the government shuts
0: down. Yeah, if you remember the 2013 shutdown, this was— perhaps less dramatic than one might have thought from the prior coverage. Um, It's not like, you know, the purge or something. So, you know, Social Security checks keep going out. Uh, Medicare reimbursements keep happening. Medicaid reimbursements keep happening. Uh, The troops who are invoked a lot in this discussion, they're not like, order to lay down their arms or something like that. They keep getting resupplied, things like that. What's true with regard to the troops and also with with regard to Social Security and Medicare is that a lot of the back office functions stop. And it's the kind of thing where, like, you know, if the government shuts down because it's Martin Luther King Day, like, that's fine. This stuff just happens a day later. If the government shuts down for a week because there's a bad snowstorm, it's also fine. There's just some delays— The same thing. If there's an appropriations lapse for a couple days, it's not like the military will collapse or nobody will have Social Security checks. But at some point, unless people show up at the Social Security Administration to process new disability claims, unless the civilian staff at the Pentagon is like thinking through, you know, do we need to order a new kind of shoelaces for the boots? You know, like the the system will break down. So you, you, you need to have the government. But what I recall from 2013, the the most visible thing was I I went to Philadelphia for some reason and um, for an event, and it was near where the Liberty Bell was, but there was, like, caution tape up, and, like, you couldn't go see the Liberty Bell. So national parks close immediately. um, Government workers are not at their desks, and over time, that means stuff doesn't get done.
1: This is really important to understand the politics of this, by the way, because, you know, I was looking at some of the stuff that happened in 2013 for a piece that I wrote that went up this morning on kind of making this essential non-essential distinction. And I hadn't been aware of some of the bigger things that had broken down during 2013. Apparently, EBT cards stopped working for, you know, for SNAP or food stamp benefits because because there had been some computer problem that they hadn't been able to fix because the support staff wasn't there. Refugee resettlement, which was not funded through appropriation. So it didn't have to stop. But the Obama administration stopped it anyway because once refugees came to the U.S., they would have had to get social security cards. And the Social Security Administration didn't, you know, wasn't open to do that. So they had decided that they couldn't do things. So those weren't the things that became headlines, though, because the politically enfranchised people don't interact with government because they're getting EBT or, you know, resettling as refugees. They interact with government because they go to see national parks and war memorials. But at the same time, the people who are going to see national parks and war memorials may consider themselves small government people, right? Like, they may not necessarily care a ton about, you know, they don't think that big government is necessarily a good thing. But when they actually interact with it, and by the same token, when you're a, you know, a member of a military family, and even though you're working, your paycheck is delayed, you can't take leave, you know, at a certain point, that's kind of a drain on morale— the politics of, well, parts of this government are working, but parts of them aren't, don't break down among along liberal conservative lines. It turns into, well, all of my constituents are being burdened in some way or another, which is why, in theory, no one is, like, gunning for a government shutdown. Nobody really wants to say, I am the person who shut down the United States government in 2018.
0: Right. I, I mean, it's also worth saying, I mean, we've had two sort of modern shutdowns, right? One in— uh 1995 and one in 2013, both times Democratic presidents, Republican congressional majorities. The president has some discretion as to sort of how do, how, do, how does the shutdown get staged, right? So when you have Democratic presidents and, and it's worth saying, because we're going to talk about this later, the, the blame game is such a big aspect of 2018, but it sort of wasn't in 1995 and, and 2013, right? In, in 1995, Newt Gingrich was very clear. He felt they had this mandate, right, that Bill Clinton had snuck in with 43 percent of the vote, that Congress had just gone Republican for the first time in decades. So they we're going to impose these sweeping changes and insist that Bill Clinton sign those laws. Clinton refused. So Gingrich was like, I'm shutting it down. I'm going to win. And he didn't win, right? In 2013, Ted Cruz inspired House Republicans to move on a more limited front, to say, look, We have this clear mandate on Obamacare, and we are going to force a shutdown unless uh, the president makes big concessions to us on this. And so, again, he was very—I wouldn't say he was willing to take the blame because he would say it was credit, but there wasn't the kind of fundamental, like, hot potato tossing that that you're seeing right now. And so then part of that is then you have Democratic presidents looking to highlight— It wouldn't have made sense to sort of embarrass Republicans off the Ted Cruz Hill to be like, oh, you're making food stamp beneficiaries suffer because those members of Congress don't care about food stamp beneficiaries. So the National Parks was a big—like, I don't know that this yellow tape really had to go up around the Liberty Bell. That sounds to me like— political theater, right? And And you
1: see that happening on the other side with the Trump administration, uh, which under Secretary Ryan Zinke has shown no love for the Department of the Interior or the National Park Service, trying to scramble to find ways to keep the national parks open because they don't want bad optics like that.
0: So, right. So with the Trump presidency, I think you're going to hear the opposite, right? You're going to hear much more from them about, like, Democrats are sacrificing Maybe they're SNAP beneficiaries. Uh, Maybe they're they're precious uh, disability insurance people. You know, uh, welfare state, they are, I think, going to highlight the ways in which this negatively impacts the welfare state, to say that Democrats are choosing dreamers over these sort of various vulnerable groups of U.S. citizens, and they're going to try to soften the blow on sort of middle-class national park attendees. The extent to which they're able to do that is a little bit uncertain. But, you you know, that's going to be important. The the other thing that people should know about here is the difference between an appropriations bill and a continuing resolution or a a CR, right? So discretionary funding happens, at least in theory, through appropriations bills. And appropriations bills, at least in theory, happen on an annual basis. At the fiscal year, there's a bunch of different ones. So there's like a defense one, there's a justice one, there's a labor department one. Um, I forget exactly. There's certain traditional like lumpings together. So like- Yeah,
1: commerce, justice, and I feel like it's science for some reason it's like only parts of various departments under that logo right
0: because because commerce and science are in the same committee in congress anyway it's it's complicated but so there's like 12 different appropriations vehicles that are supposed to be written out by the appropriations subcommittees and passed through the house it's very common for this to to not function as designed so then the The fallback is you can have an omnibus appropriations bill, which is you fold together a bunch of these different things. Leadership makes a deal. You pass that. But then the other thing that Congress does is pass a continuing resolution. And so a continuing resolution is the previous appropriations are going to expire, and you don't have a deal yet on how you're going to change it. So you just say, okay, we continue – the past appropriations for X more days. And that's where we've been since October, right? This was back in September. There was the meeting at the White House. Donald Trump referred very affectionately to Chuck and Nancy. They suggested a short-term continuing resolution. Trump agreed immediately. And so ever since then, we've had a, a series of CRs. And I guess what you should know is when you don't have an appropriations deal that doesn't shut the government down right what shuts the government down is that one side or the other pulls the plug on voting for a continuing resolution. And then you go into a shutdown mode. Uh, Republicans are, as far as I can tell, nowhere on appropriations bills. They have, we're like months behind schedule. They don't seem to have done any work at all. And that's an interesting background condition to this. So we've been doing- especially
1: when, you know, the the flip side of it doesn't, you, you know, it takes one party walking away from the table on a CR to shut down the government is that over time- frustration with just kicking the can down the road begins to mount on both sides, which is why one reason why Democrats blinked twice in December over the exact same issue that they're not blinking on now, which is a permanent solution for deferred action of childhood arrivals recipients, young unauthorized immigrants. And at the same time, the White House is giving strange quotes to media outlets about how the real problem is that Republicans in Congress are still passing CRs and are nowhere on a budgeting process that like complicates the question of who Whose fault is it really that a CR might not get passed? Right.
0: And a specific concern Republicans have, Democrats to some extent, but but especially Republicans, is that all departments would prefer to be able to plan on a longer time horizon than seven days, 30 days, things like that. Uh, But if you think about the stuff the different agencies do, the Defense Department buys a lot more expensive durable goods than, than the other kinds of agencies, right? So, like, the Justice Department buys a lot of paper, um, a certain number of office chairs. Uh, it pays people salaries. But it doesn't—I mean, they, they have some things, but they, but they, it, it's not like airplanes, right, and aircraft carriers and, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but the Defense Department really would like to know, like, how many ships is the Navy going to have? Um, and, they, and they need appropriations bills to get that and— they expect a Republican Congress to deliver, that, or Republicans in Congress themselves expect to deliver higher military budgets over time, one way or another, to to put the politics of that together. So every time you do another 30-day CR, another one-week CR, you sort of squeeze the military's aspirations for uh, sort of big Trump defense buildup. And that's important, I mean, it's important on its own terms because it it weighs on some Republicans. It's also important because Lindsey Graham and John McCain, who are some of the biggest immigration doves in the Republican Party, are also some of the biggest defense hawks. So it, it's one reason that some of this linkage between these issues has come together, right, that Graham and McCain— completely apart from immigration, would like to get 60-vote appropriations bills moving so that they can do their defense appropriations that they want. And with Democrats having put on the table that the thing they want to cooperate in the process is a deal on immigration, Graham and McCain are also... The Republicans were most inclined to want to do a deal on immigration. So in the alternate universe where this all sort of ended happily, I would say that's the explanation, right? That the like overlapping Venn diagram of immigration reformer Republicans and defense hawk Republicans kind of moved the wheel. Uh, But we're we're in the other world.
1: Well, we might be in the alternate universe, you know, at some point in the next several hours. Who knows? But right. uh, let's maybe take a break and then let's we take can a break. Get and, back to this question of, about, of whose fault would it be if yes. it did shut down.
0: Okay, it's a new year, and if you need new staff at your company, it's hard to find great people out there. And the answer to your problems is ZipRecruiter. So you should make it your New Year's resolution to take advantage of that. So here's how it works: ZipRecruiter it posts your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So that's good. But then comes the real magic: they actively look for the most qualified candidates and invite them to reply. They even review every application to identify the top candidates, so you never miss a great match. That's what makes ZipRecruiter different. It's It's not like other hiring sites. They don't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. That's why Recruiter is there in the name. Recruiter. They recruit people for you. Uh, So it's no wonder that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. That's really fast. So ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and all industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. So our listeners can post on ZipRecruiter for free. Free. You just go to ziprecruiter.com slash weeds. That's ziprecruiter.com slash weeds. One more time. Try it for free. Go to ziprecruiter.com slash weeds. I, I actually think but before we before we blame, can you explain, Dara, like what what is actually happening with DACA? Right. So this was, DACA was rescinded a few months ago. Yes. Mitch McConnell has a lot of cool memes now about how, like, it's all cool until March. So why are we even Which talking is, about this? So it's, it's what's amazing. The, what's because, the situation?
1: Right. So I, for months and months, was saying don't listen to Mitch McConnell. The March deadline is an inflection point when the Trump administration announced in September that they were winding down the DACA program, they said, immediately, we won't accept any new applications for protection and work permits. So if you've just turned, you know, 15 and would be eligible, then you still can't apply. They but can, also... you, can
0: you explain that more?
1: <laughs> sure. Um, right. So the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program instituted under, under Obama two-year renewable work permits and protection from deportation for people who had come to the U.S. as children or young teenagers who had been in the U.S. for at least five years, et cetera, et cetera. You had to apply, but, you know, if you met all the criteria, you probably were going to get protection. And again, it was renewable, so every two years you could apply for a renewal and get one. Trump, after saying that he had a lot of heart and was going to come up with a solution that everyone was going to love, Uh, allowed Jeff Sessions to go out and say, well, we're winding down the DACA program because we think it's unconstitutional. And so immediately no new grants of protection from deportation and work permits were being granted. And people whose work permits were about to expire over the next six months had this very narrow window to apply for a one last two-year renewal. And then anyone whose work permit was set to expire after March 5th, 2018 did not have the chance to renew. So someone whose work permit was going to expire on March 6th 2018, like that was going to be it. They were going to lose their work permit and lose protection from deportation. So the way that Trump framed this was, well, this gives Congress six months to act because no one is necessarily going to lose their work permit before March 5th, which in theory was true. But given the way that DHS actually wound down the program with this very narrow window and this very stingy way that they judged who had an application in in time, about 22,000 people missed that window. So It became clear kind of through the fall and early winter that people were already losing DACA. And it was just going to be a question of how many people could lose DACA before it became a serious political problem. So Democrats started really raising the alarm saying, we can't wait until March. We have to act as soon as possible. People are already feeling the effects of this. Republicans led by Mitch McConnell were going, eh, This isn't really necessary until March. Maybe the president will even extend it. And reporters like me and a few other people were really harping on, if the problem here is that people with DACA are losing DACA, then the March 5th deadline doesn't actually mean anything. And no, the president can't extend it, yada, yada, yada. Until last week, when a federal judge out in California decided that The Trump administration had to start accepting renewal applications again for people who had been covered by DACA, but were about to lose their work permits or had lost their work permits. Uh, The ruling there was not regarded as the strongest legal argument. So everyone kind of assumed, well, the Trump administration is just going to like try to get this challenged, try to get it stopped. Instead, the Trump administration Move forward and said, we're going to start accepting these renewal applications again, and meanwhile, move to challenge the ruling at the Supreme Court, which skips a step, but didn't move to get it stopped in the meantime. So right now, it looks pretty apparent that as of March 5th, people who have work permits under DACA are still going to be able to apply for renewals, that that's going to be open in this weird, zombified, could theoretically evaporate, but legally, the Trump administration hasn't moved to do that yet for the next few months. So all of a sudden, Mitch McConnell is not wrong, right? Right. He's, He's wrong when he says that this is urgent on March 5th, but not before then. But he's not wrong that right now, someone whose work permit expires on March 4th or whose work permit expires on March 6th can apply for a renewal. And Democrats haven't really been making that apparent. They've really been harping on the fact that people are currently losing status and that therefore this makes this urgent. Which is understandable politically, and it's definitely true that not everyone who can apply for a renewal is choosing to do so. There's lots of concern about, do I really want to spend $500 when I might have to turn around and apply for legalization? You know, do I really want to give the Trump administration my information again? And people are—nobody is like, oh, this is great. I'm totally safe now. Everyone's really looking to Congress to come up with something permanent. But it does change the facts on the ground of— whether this is going to be a matter of hundreds of people a day losing work permits or whether the Trump administration is going to make it possible for the for the pain to be felt on the ground a little bit less, possibly for the sake of making Congress feel that they don't need to take action. Right. So to to
0: boil this down a, a little bit cynically, right. Back when Congress was not acting urgently the trump administration was being incredibly stingy in the way it wound down the program and was sort of quietly de as many people as they could possibly manage to get away with but then right as the tempo of congressional action picked up they moved to make the mitch mcconnell lack of urgency more true Right. I mean, like—
1: I would say that they certainly took advantage of a judicial ruling that they they didn't— you know, I I don't think there's a world in which the DOJ was like, oh, that's awesome.
0: Right. But I mean, if you get struck down by a district court judge appointed by the opposite party, who I think a lot of neutral observers would not, like— blown away by the legal reasoning in this opinion, you could, like, go nuclear, right? Like, apply for an immediate stay, Stay, denounce it. They did not do that. They thought, actually, this is a good time to turn down the heat.
1: Right. Legally, they are literally now telling the Supreme Court, well, we want you guys to resolve this because it's a matter of such huge public importance that we can't wait for it to go through the circuit court. But at the same time, we don't want to apply for a stay because we don't want to make radical changes to immigration policy, which is, of course, what they did by allowing DACA to go back into effect in part.
0: Right. And so this gets us to There's a lot of different players, and they have, I would say, different objectives here. But Mitch McConnell's objective, I would say, is in some ways clearest. Yes. And what he wants to do is defer and sideline this topic, that Senate Republicans disagree amongst themselves on the underlying merits about DACA. What Mitch McConnell would like to do is get an appropriation, get a CR that does not address DACA, have negotiations about DACA proceed on some track that doesn't have anything to do with him. If Donald Trump decides he wants to make a deal with Democrats on DACA, I think Mitch McConnell would be fine with that. And if Donald Trump does not want to make a deal, he would be fine with that too. What he does not want is disagreement about immigration to derail his ability to keep the Senate calendar clear to confirm judges and roll along with with the rest of business. Like, McConnell is always the cynic of Republican Party leadership. Like, Tom Cotton has strong opinions about this. There's maybe some fake promises were made to Jeff Flake. Lindsey Graham seems to have strong feelings about this. Mitch McConnell would like everyone to just decide they don't need to do anything until March and then... In March, maybe they'll do something, maybe they won't. It it doesn't matter.
1: And this this is not, Matt, like, reading Mitch McConnell's mind, right? McConnell has said this publicly, that he will bring a bill to the floor that deals with immigration when and only when Donald Trump tells the Senate what he wants. Because so far on domestic policy— The issues that Congress has taken up have not been issues that Donald Trump had super strong and detailed opinions on that he elaborated on the campaign trail. He was perfectly happy to let the people who had thought about tax reform in Congress take that. Between the fact that there is substantial disagreement within the Republican Party, not just on the merits of legalizing people who have been in the U.S. for decades, which, you know, in in the case of people who came to the U.S. when they were like, 10 years old and who have been here for 20 years since then, that's an issue that I think a lot of Republicans could get on board with depending on what they got in return. The question of what they get in return is a very, very tricky issue. And it's very hard to understand right now what exactly Republicans are asking for because there are so many different people who have different priorities. So the easiest way to resolve that is the leader of the Republican Party, de facto, is sitting in the White House. He does have strongly articulated opinions about immigration. If he says, here are the important things that I, Donald Trump, who got elected president, want to see done, and then once there was a bill that actually did those, he said, this is a good bill, it would be very easy for Mitch McConnell and, for that matter, Paul Ryan, to say, well, we're doing what the president wants and not deal with the kind of internal dissent within their caucus. The problem, of course, is that It looked like that was going to happen last week during the televised White House meeting. And then Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin, like, wrote a plan to the specifications in that White House meeting. Trump rejected it rather infamously as letting in people from shithole countries. Immigration hawks in Congress and in the White House said, this doesn't actually do what we wanted it to do. And from there, everybody else in Congress who wanted other things out of an immigration deal said, and what about this? And what about this? And what about this? Without Trump's leadership on this. It's not just hard to see how a deal gets done in the next several hours. It's hard to see how a deal gets done, period, which is why Democrats, you know, starting back in December, started saying, the only way we're going to deal with this issue, which theoretically Republicans have also agreed is important, right, after the Trump administration said they were going to rescind DACA, lots of Republicans were coming forward saying, well, now we have to act. So in theory, you guys want to do this. We want to do this. Let's attach it to a must-pass bill, because otherwise it ain't going to get done. Which brings us to the message that Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan are now using, that you know Democrats are bringing in this extraneous issue to the question of government funding, whereas Democrats believe that they are taking an issue that in theory is a bipartisan priority and making sure that it actually happens.
0: But now we got to talk about the blame
1: Yeah, game. yeah. Because,
0: okay, so— 1995, 2013, you have the Congressional Majority Party deliberately engineers a government shutdown to try to get concessions from a Democratic president. Both times, it backfires. Fast forward to 2018. That is not what's happening. Exactly. Both because Republicans have the majority, but they need 60 votes to pass a bill in the Senate. So it it kind of doesn't matter that Republicans have the majority, but it, but it maybe matters. So now what, what's happening in 2018 is it's in some ways the opposite of 2013, where both parties want to say that it's the other party that has caused the shutdown. And this has started to make frankly, irrelevant mathematical considerations be incredibly relevant. So the way Democrats were hoping that this would play out was that 20 to 30 far-right House Republicans would refuse to vote for the appropriations bill or, or for the CR, rather, either on the grounds that the overall spending level is too high, on the grounds that the military spending level is too low, or on the grounds that it doesn't include a wall, Wh- whatever a wall means. But you know, the, to, to an extent, the wall is a social construct, um, and you can you can object on whatever grounds you want. So that has happened many times in the past. It has frequently been the case that a clutch of right-wing House Republicans have voted no on appropriations bills or CRs, and therefore Democratic House votes have been needed. So what Democrats were were hoping for in that case was that Republicans would need to ask Democrats for their votes, and then the price of Democratic votes was going to be some kind of an immigration deal. And a shutdown were it to occur would have been... in this view caused by the right-wing House Republicans defecting. So that didn't happen, right? The the Republicans in the House got their shit together. They passed the the clean 30-day continuing resolution, punted it over to the Senate, right? So now you get another iteration of this same thing where Democrats are... Hanging their political hopes on the fact that there's only 51 Republicans in the Senate, um, which not only puts them short of 60, because I, I, I will put it another way. The thing Democrats do not want to do is have a CR pass the House, then have 51 Senate Republicans all say, I am going to vote for the CR, and then have like 42 Democratic senators saying, no, I'm going to filibuster the CR, and then have five or six Democrats representing, like, West Virginia, North Dakota, Missouri, like, stranded in the middle of a shutdown whose issue is a partisan fight about immigration, right? Because that creates an ugly situation in which the DACA issue is very important to uh, the electoral base of, of many Democrats, especially in the House, but also in the
1: Senate. And DACA but, is not itself super contentious, but immigration is contentious. So a world in which these attack ads are going up saying shut down the government over illegal immigration is really what is being
0: feared. And it's, also, it's also just a question of priorities, right? To, to a first approximation, there is nobody in the state of West Virginia who is fired up about immigration policy on the pro-immigrant side. You know what I mean? I, I so you know we're for, gonna get
1: some angry emails from West Virginia. I'm sure. Today.
0: I'm sure there's one. But so you know, for for Joe Manchin, for Joe Donnelly, for Heidi Heitkamp, for Claire McCaskill, uh, for Democrats in states with very low Latino and Asian populations, like bipartisanship is the name of the game. Right? They want to do what the party wants on immigration, but they don't want to be like out on a limb about it. Right. So now along comes the hope, which seemed to have been the case uh, Thursday night, that Republicans cannot actually get 51 Senate votes for their, uh, for their bill, in part because Mike Lee and Rand Paul don't like to vote for CRs, uh, in part because Lindsey Graham appears to be uh, moving in some kind of real way to get his bill through. Uh, Jeff Flake, at the last minute, remembered that he extracted a promise for a vote on a DACA fix as the price of his tax bill. I mean, I I had also forgotten that because it seemed obviously fake at the time, but he put out a press release saying he was mad that he wasn't getting what he had
1: promised. There are other Republicans who have been involved in the negotiations with Graham and Flake over a DACA fix who if push came to shove, could in fact, you know, make noise about, well, we won't vote for a CR either because they feel that they've engaged in the negotiating process in good faith. And if they feel like they're being thrown over for a fake negotiating process, that might be an insult to them.
0: And also, John McCain is not actually here, right? So, because he he's sick um, and he seems to have sent in by carrier pigeon or something that he, that he supports Graham uh, on the process. Anyway, this is... Maybe, given Democrats enough on which to make the argument that it's not that they are shutting down the government. It's that Republicans can't keep the government open and they need Democrats' help. Now, this is like to me, is this like such an insane slicing of the salami? But, like I, I, I've seen people like kill aids are, like, glued to CNN chirons because to them—and they may not be wrong. Like, the world is a genuinely stupid place. Like, the whole political freight of this hinges on whether we're saying that the Democratic Senate minority shut down the government over DACA, in which case Democrats lose, or Republican bumbling shut the government down and they need Democrats' help. In right. which case everyone's win. Now what but, difference and, and this does this is, make course, in reality? I have no fucking idea. But. Right,
1: right. It's it's a question of the people who are framing the question are the people who are answering it, right? It's not it's not actually like lots of Americans are glued to their are glued to CNN Chirons going, "Well, I don't want the government to shut down. Which party should I make a note to vote against in November because they shut it down?" For one thing, it's not clear what the long term political effects of a shutdown are going to be. Anyway, the 2013 shutdown as bad as it looked for Republicans at the time. Didn't stop 2014 from being a very good year for Republicans, but it's also the case that the media, you know, the the kind of mainstream political media has decided or has adopted from the politicians the idea that this question of blame is extremely important and therefore are the ones who are right now framing the questions. So you have CNN kind of taking a tough stance and like asking Democratic lawmakers, well, you said this other thing in 2013. Why don't you, you know, why have you changed your position? And at the same time, you have Politico saying it's going to be a tricky situation for Republicans because they currently control both houses in the White House if they can't keep the government open. You can see the seeds of blame narratives on both sides, and no one—it's totally possible that either or both of those frames will get discarded once a shutdown actually happens, and everyone will agree it's Democrats' fault, or everyone will agree it's Republicans' fault, maybe because the White House is saying— it's the fault of congressional Republicans, but it's a, but it's a,
0: but the point is, is it's a completely postmodern situation, right? This is basically like Wolf Blitzer chasing his own tail, or Mark Halperin before his fall from grace introduced the the, the useful concept of of the gang of five hundred, which is like this is like a relatively small number of people who collectively constitute the like conventional wisdom in political media, and it often doesn't matter what the conventional wisdom in political media is, but this is one of these circumstances in which it sort of does, right? That like a couple of Star political reporters at the New York Times and the Washington Post. The people, especially the people who are in charge of the headlines at the New York Times and the Washington Post, then secondarily Politico and Axios and their newsletter people, and now what people say on Twitter. Um, CNN is super duper important to this because they are not in the the partisan fray. Uh, Morning Joe similarly occupies this like torn partisan position and it's like not that many other you know it's like Vox like we can write what we want but like you know we're, we're too liberal it, it doesn't matter um, and it's it's a little bit like Democrats it, will get mad at
1: us Republicans will not get
0: sure at but I mean it's like you could see like people in these kinds of positions would like there to be an answer where you can like go with your divining rod into the pool of truth and see, like, who is to blame for this. But you can't. They collectively decide who is to blame. But so, like, I I mean, I think the clearest example of this, right, is it definitely does not matter that there are 51 Republican senators rather than 49 Republican senators. Like, that is— mathematically irrelevant to the passage of 60 vote bills, especially because one or maybe two of the Republican senators is sick. But I have heard it said by both the Democrats and people in the media that it's like it's way more embarrassing to have a shutdown when Republicans control the whole government. And I, I don't know, man. Like, I, I I don't want dreamers to get deported. So I, I guess I'm willing to go with that spin. But like, I, I don't understand what difference it makes.
1: And like this, this sucks, and it sucks for two related but distinct reasons. One of those reasons is that 2013, during the 12 days that the government was shut down, had some of the most grounded reporting in what the government actually means to people it, from Washington
0: outlets yeah, yeah.
1: that we'd seen, you know, over the several years previous to that. There really were a lot of reports on. Here are various ways in which the government you know, impacts people's lives that either are or aren't being totally disabled or degraded because of this shutdown. And that's exactly what's not happening when everyone talks about, well, who is to blame for it? There's an opportunity cost there. There's oxygen that's being lost. The related part of that is that when you turn who is to blame into the central question of should we shut down the government or not, with with the answer being only if the other guys get blamed for it. You have situations like the one we have right now where Mitch McConnell and congressional Republicans are saying Democrats are putting the needs of illegal immigrants over the needs of U.S. citizen children because we're agreeing to fund the CHIP program for six more years as part of the CR, and they're refusing to do it because of DACA. And it is not the case that CHIP needed to get passed as part of a CR. They could have done it at any point over the last several months. I'm going to get too
0: mad about CHIP if we start talking about CHIP.
1: Yeah, but it's it's, it's worth noting if we don't keep funding CHIP, U.S. citizen children will be hurt. That is definitely true. That was also true for the last several weeks. And this idea that government only matters, you know, this is like what you were saying earlier with the different ways that parties in power frame the effects of government shutdown. If government's effect on people only matters if it makes the other guys look bad, that is not a situation you that is going to lead to government functioning well, regardless of what you want government to do. It creates an incentive to degrade the functions of government that are going to make the other guy look bad.
0: Yes. Now, so I think separate from the question of the blame game, if you want to understand like why we have come to this point of crisis, like what is the cause here? It is Donald Trump and the Trump White House changing its mind about what its goals are, right? that, That seems important to me, that when Trump was newly elected president, he had obviously campaigned a lot by saying at rallies that we were going to build a wall and we were going to make Mexico pay. There was a lot of discussion of this concept, Obviously, Mexico was not going to pay for a wall. I think everybody knew that. I think everybody also knew, and they even, during the transition, started admitting this, that, like, you weren't actually, actually, actually going to build all this wall, but— During the campaign, admitted right, it. But the wall as a—I'll a, a, I, I try to distinguish this, like, quote-unquote, the wall, right? Like, there, there was still an objective to do something— that would be called building the wall.
1: And, you know, that, as I say, whenever we have this conversation, continues to move forward. There are prototypes in the desert in San Diego, et cetera, et cetera.
0: But they have not made the decision. I mean, again, I I, I think, like, like, the wall is truly a, like, Baudrillard- Simulacra, right? It's 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 not a wall. It's, Are we going to get Baudrillard in the show notes? Yeah, please? it's not. It's it's like it's not a thing, right? right. It, it's truly a social construct, right? right? The, and the so, only and relevant so, question with a
1: wall is when you put the big Trump podium in front of something and you have the cameras and you say, "We built a wall, mission accomplished." Is th- how how much of a wall do you have behind you?
0: But also, right. <laughs> so so far, nothing has occurred that, according to Donald Trump is the building of the wall, right? And to satisfy himself, to to get that we have built the wall moment, required some kind of large appropriation. And to get that large appropriation requires an appropriation bill, as previously discussed. Yes,
1: I would actually say that the Trump administration is simultaneously saying that they are building the wall and that Congress is preventing them from building the wall. But they
0: they haven't done the thing. There's no mission accomplished, we built the wall, right? And so they they need 60 votes for some kind of wall building measure and they can't they can't get that so they were thinking at one point last august trump was suggesting there should be a government shutdown if we can't get the wall right and so this was a clear the, the blame game scenario there was clear right where democrats were going to say look we'll do a cr we'll keep the government open because the cr does not include the hypothetical wall appropriation. And Trump was suggesting Republicans should hold out and and demand the wall. And no
1: Republican was particularly enthused about just giving the president a billion and a half dollars for about 75,
0: you know, miles of wall. But also due to the centrality of the blame game, right? Like what Trump was tweeting was like, we're going to take the blame. And nobody in Congress thought that was a good idea. So so it didn't happen. So then Trump cancels DACA. And the cancellation of DACA was itself this weird thing where a million different messages came forth from the administration as to why this was happening, right? One idea that was in the mix at that time was that this was Trump gaining leverage, right? Was that he wanted the wall his allies in Congress were telling him, we can't get Democrat, we can't make Democrats cough up the votes for the wall. So now, by canceling DACA, Trump had this bargaining chip. And so he could give Democrats DACA something in exchange for the wall, which is something. And then we were gonna have a negotiation because the meaning of both branches of that fork is a little bit unclear. But the but the parameters of a negotiation would be clear, right? How much money would be appropriated for, quote unquote, the wall? And what exactly would, quote unquote, the wall be is something you can negotiate about. And how exactly would a legislative DACA fix work? You know, would you get permanent residency? How would you be able to sponsor your parents? I mean, there's a lot of ins and outs to it. But again, that's the kind of thing that a bunch of lawyers and some senators can sit around the table and they can work something out. And that's like one universe, right, that that then we're going to have a deal. And then at the end of the day, Democrats from blue states are going to go back to their constituents and say, we saved the dreamers. Donald Trump is going to say, we built the wall and we— have done this other border security stuff and it's all good and like who needs to deport dreamers anyway and democrats from red states are going to say senate democrats from red states are going to say bipartisanship is amazing and house republicans from south florida texas southern california are going to say this is great bipartisanship amazing that's congressional deal making Right, It meets the key needs of the cross-pressured incumbents in both parties, in both houses, and in that sense is like a positive sum win.
1: Except that it turns out that congressional Republicans did not share the administration's affection for the wall per se, and therefore weren't particularly enthused about a deal that was going to— give up something that they wanted to extract leverage on without giving them the particular things that they wanted, which is part of how this—it's it's part right. of why nothing happens until, you know, that why the Trump administration starts picking up these other
0: requests to fix this. Right. So, I, I mean, the fact that the wall is stupid sort of plays a role in this, right? Like, the real immigration hawks in Congress had never come up with a stunt, I guess, as good as the wall, but also the wall is is dumb. And so serious immigration hawks didn't want to make a real policy concession in exchange for a photo op and
1: just because i've been i've been getting some some flack from people in south texas who every time i say that the wall is like not a huge deal say well just come and look at our nature preserves that are being destroyed it is true that the militarization of the border as a trend is something that has a lot of long-term consequences and that a lot of border communities oppose it is also a trend that is happening. Right. Physical infrastructure is being built was being built under the Obama administration. So when we say the wall is stupid, what we mean what we mean is the difference between what would have happened under a president Hillary Clinton and what could happen under a president Donald Trump saying we built the wall is not necessarily a ginormous difference.
0: Right. And anyway, the Trump administration somewhere along the way has flipped on the con, on the basic concept of the DACA for wall deal, it used to seem like Trump personally preferred DACA and the wall to no wall, no DACA, right? And now he's flipped. Now, if Democrats just rolled over tomorrow and were like, "Fuck it, we'll give you the CR, we'll pocket the chip extension, we're not going to get anything done on the Dreamers, the wall will not be built." Trump would say, aha, I won. I made the Democrats back down. Back in August 2017, that was the situation Trump defined as losing. So he has gained the tactical upper hand by changing his negotiating objectives to something that's easier to obtain. And that's that, that's is, like, from that's like why this is
1: happening. But it's also—it's it's extremely weird and counterproductive from a policy standpoint, because the other things that are being asked for in this negotiation, that the other lines that are being drawn, either by immigration hawks in the White House like Stephen Miller and, to a lesser degree, legislative director Mark Short, or by immigration hawks in Congress are— current law is too lax in some ways and we need to restrict it in exchange for legalizing the dreamers so if you have no deal none of those things happen either right, right? you don't you can't restrict family based immigration you can't get rid of the diversity visa lottery just by having no deal happen so It's the very, it's the same people who are saying, well, we can't, we need to extract this one leverage point of dreamers for all the juice that it's worth, who are simultaneously striking down any deal that gets proposed because it doesn't do enough on various other things, are gunning for a situation in which that is as close to the status quo as possible, right? Where like for the next few months, dreamers are going to continue to have renewable work permits. There is no change to any of the things that they want to restrict, and this tactically no-deal situation is seen as a win for the very people who need the biggest changes to the status quo. Right,
0: yes. I, I mean, that's that's what I mean. That the I think Republicans, in a narrow sense, have the upper hand in this negotiation, but it's because they have defined victory down to a point where a situation in which they don't change the legal immigration system at all, and they don't get the wall, but they— They win the sort of booby prize of a year's worth of like bad headlines about sympathetic dreamers getting deported because they're not going to – we said this last week. But like the aggregate number of people who are going to be removed is not going to go up this way. And the dreamers of all the people in the cosmos are the people who are absolutely least likely to self-deport. Right. Because these are people who have no really no place to go, no reason to leave uh, unless they're dragged out in chains. And And you don't
1: want to be the person saying, well, yeah, you could have, you know, you could have renewed your work permit because this judge in California made this ruling. Why didn't you take advantage of that? You don't want to be the person making that legalistic argument when the reason that one of the reasons people aren't necessarily renewing is because they aren't aware because all of the noise has been made by Republicans saying we're shutting down this program. And
0: and Secretary Nielsen was up on the Hill and, you know, she was not Like everybody, she was not willing to stand up there and say, I think it's like a really super great idea and a big important priority to go round up dreamers and deport them from the country. I think to an extent, the assurances she was trying to offer are are false hope. That's not how they're running the agency. But it's, it's again, it's worth saying, right? You have a finite universe of resources. You have a population of people who could be rounded up. And deported. And we're now talking about making eligible for removal a group of people who, even the immigration hawks themselves, don't want to make the the poster. The, they don't want to make that the face of the Trump immigration crackdown. They want to make MS 13 the face of the Trump immigration crackdown. So, again, I, I think they can, if they hold themselves all together, if they lead enough on un- Republican members of Congress, like I think they can win this fight if they really want to but it doesn't make a lot of sense and the demands that they are making right they don't make sense in a in a bargain if you, it's. I mean, everybody wants more in a bargain, right? But there's no possible constituency for the deal that they're putting on the table. If you look at the the, the memo that Jonathan Swan uh, put forward, if you look at the pieces of paper Stephen Miller has sent around, if you look at everything Tom Cotton a, a has ever said about immigration, they're trying to say, OK, you're going to protect a few hundred thousand Dreamers from deportation, and in exchange, you're going to make— Sweeping comprehensive changes to how the whole immigration system works. And, you know, uh, let Latino citizens with a vested interest in immigration, right, with enough roots abroad to care about immigration policy are not going to like that deal Asian communities aren't going to... There's, there's, They're there's nobody not going um, to like
1: that deal when it's extremely easy to connect that deal with, we have a racist in the White House.
0: This is the system the racist in the White House wants. Right, but it's just, it's just nobody, nobody wants that. Whereas the, the wall, you could... You know, some people don't like militarization of the border. People who people who live down there uh, particular ha- have some objections. Money is always a little bit scarce. But, but you could really see that as an orthogonal thing, that there are communities who would like to see Dreamers protected. And then on the other hand, there's like border hawks right. who want to do stuff there. But that there are people living in, you know, Chicago who could look at that deal and be like, this is great, right? There's nobody who would look at. The deal the White House is proposing. There's nobody on the Democratic side who would say this is great. Like it doesn't, it doesn't begin to make sense. And nobody would consider it for like a minute. It's it's completely crazy. I think I feel like
1: you're saying this and therefore making it certain that at some point, like two hours from now, the White House is going to come out and say we've gotten everything we're asking for, because who knows?
0: No. I'm, I'm <laughs> confident that's not going to happen. But in in the hopes of making sure that we do not get excessively overtaken by events, uh, I think it would be helpful to I mean, bring this to an end <laughs> with that and say that, um, you know, that's where we are, right? We, we had meant to. We left on the cutting room floor, uh, but we should discuss another time, like, what deal-making means to Donald Trump. But I think that we're seeing it here, right? That it is not a quest for a plausible win-win for all sides is a quest for a victory and in this case if that if to gain the victory means sort of abandoning their strategic goals that's maybe good enough
1: yeah as one of the as, as the Canadians who have been upset about NAFTA negotiations put it uh, the Trump administration is setting up an, a situation in which I win only get said because
0: you lose. Right. So with that, uh, thanks to everybody for, for listening. Uh, please check out uh, Weed's Facebook group if you want to uh, you know, continue the discussion there, keep talking about things. Uh, we will see whether the government shuts down or not. Uh, you know, we'll pop by, talk, talk about what's happening there. Uh, thanks to Peter Leonard and uh, Griffin Tanner for producing and editing this episode. And we will be back. Well, actually, I will not be back, but the Weeds will be back next week. Uh, so keep on listening.